Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are going to finish Revelation 20 today, and we started last time kind of unpacking the millennium and what was that all about, and then suddenly the last really five verses of Revelation 20 move into an event called the White Throne. And so we're going to look at what is that all about. It happens at the end of the millennium. And Revelation is one of those books, again, it's the most incredible book in the entire Bible, but we are two, after today, we're two chapters away from finishing it. And before we dive in, let's just open in prayer and petition the Holy Spirit to really teach us everything, because this book, it's the only book of the entire Bible that promises a blessing on anyone that reads and anyone that hears the words of this prophecy. So Lord, we just come before you and we pray that you would anoint your word today from 1 John 2.27, God, that we do not need any man to teach us, myself included, but Lord, the anointing of, of the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. And so, Lord, we are petitioning you to teach us everything today and just to speak to your body, to your bride, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So, Revelation 20, the last, last five verses here, we're going to dive in kind of going all the way back to, we've been talking about this slide every week for the last few weeks, and I went back, this was interesting, I went back and looked, this is now, I think we've done 43 weeks through Revelation, something like that, so we're, we're quickly approaching a year in this book from when we started all the way back in January, and what's amazing is we're so close to the end, so I, I don't know, we may finish up around Christmas time or sometime around there, but we'll see. We, we probably will finish before the year end, and then I'm still praying about, and if you all would pray too, what book to conquer next, that'd be awesome. But again, I've sarcastically called this the Great Reset, the last six chapters of the Bible from 17 through 22. So we're right there in the millennium at the end of chapter 20, and we're going to take and look at what is this white throne all about that's in Revelation, and the white throne at the end of the millennium. Austin, can you hit the slide? Thanks, man. So we'll be in a new era. So I wanted to do real quick, just as a reminder, last time we went through the characteristics of the millennium. What is it all about? And we're not going to read all these verses again, but I just wanted to remind you that the government will be upon his shoulders from Isaiah 9, 6, speaking of Jesus. His kingdom will not be destroyed from Daniel 7. We as the church get to judge the world and angels from 1 Corinthians 6. He will put down all rule and all enemies under his feet from 1 Corinthians 15. He will give us power over the nations from Revelation 2. The curse that's established all the way back in Genesis 3 is on plant life and the ground is reversed in Isaiah 32 and confirmed again in Isaiah 35. Then we have, there's animals will not attack each other from Isaiah 11:6. It talks about the wolf and the lamb lying down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. There's no more poisonous snakes from Isaiah 11. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord from Isaiah 11:9. 9. 
The moon and sun will be changed. There will be a pure language from Zephaniah 3. Ethiopia is going to bring a gift to, to the Messiah. So I mentioned last time that we would dive into what is that gift all about that Ethiopia is bringing to the Messiah as it's alluded to in Acts chapter 8. So we're going to look at that in, in detail today. There are no Jewish unbelievers, apparently, from Jeremiah 31, and the heathen will perish out of his land in Psalms 10. And when you really think about it, that's not even all of the characteristics. That's really just a, a short list of some highlights of what is, the, what is the millennium all about. And we know it's a new age, so it's a, it's a totally new time in the world. But he's going to make Israel a strong nation that he rules over from Micah 4. Israel's land will be divided by tribe in Ezekiel 48. The Millennium Temple is only open on the Sabbath and the new moon, and sacrifices are restored. And the prince, which is David, is going to offer sacrifices from Ezekiel 46. You know, a lot of people ask, well, why are there sacrifices again in the Millennium? If, you know, obviously Jesus has died, those have been put aside, and the book of Hebrews talks heavily about that. So what's going on there? It's a... It's a look back in memory, in memory as a memorial to Jesus and what he did. But it talks about that all in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. The age of accountability apparently is about 100 years old from Isaiah 65. Sin's existent, but it's judged immediately. Death seems to be only for the unbelieving Gentiles in Isaiah 65. The nations must send representation at feast days, otherwise they do not get rain. That's all in Zechariah 14. And Zechariah 14 talks about how Egypt will actually not send representation on one of the feast days, and thus they will not get rain. And so, <laughs> you can go to the next slide, Austin. Go ahead. This is going to be great. So, so, that's some characteristics about the millennium. And Mason, just so you know, no matter how big this church grows, this will never get old. It just, it's not, it's not going to get old. So what is this gift that the Ethiopians are going to bring to Jesus in the millennium? <laughs> and, and yes, I, you can imagine how hard I was laughing when I put this slide together yesterday. It's actually, I'm a little disappointed because it's not in your printout, and I made it not in the printout so you guys wouldn't see it before. But I think Mason saw it before church up on the screen, maybe. So I, I was really hoping for the, the fresh reaction. But Ethiopia, so they have a gift they're bringing to the Messiah. And it's about the Ark of the Covenant. And people for centuries have been looking for the Ark of the Covenant. It's in pop culture. It's in Indiana Jones, obviously. And a great leader in our church, uh, Mason's been searching for it for a long time. And... It, it apparently disappeared after the Babylonian captivity. And a lot of people link it to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And you can imagine how the world, if the Ark of the Covenant was found, how the world would clamor for it to have a home. And the whole world would unite behind, we've got to get a temple restored as a place for this relic that really the entire world has been searching for for a long time. It was not in Herod's temple when, Cre when Jesus walked the earth. And many believe the ark was taken by Menelik I. He was the first emperor of Ethiopia in the 10th century BC. So Menelik, it inaugurated the Solomonic dynasty of Ethiopia. And he was named because he was the son of King Solomon and Makeda, the Ethiopian queen of Sheba. If you remember from the, the account in the Bible, Remember, the queen 
of Ethiopia came to see all that Solomon had, and he showed her all of the riches of his kingdom. So they had a son. He was raised by priests. And what's interesting is Amos 9-7, the Lord says, Are you not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel? From Amos 9-7. See, the Lord has a special place in his heart for the Ethiopians. And when you really start to, pull, to peel this back, their history is incredible. But the ark supposedly went from Elephantine Island in Egypt to uh, Tana Kirkus Island in Ethiopia, and finally to a bunker at St. Mary's Zion Church at Aksum in Ethiopia. That's apparently the route that the ark took. And when you study this, what I found amazing is the Ethiopians actually have the lion of the tribe of Judah on their currency. And they have a, a Bible like we do that's been kind of passed around in their culture for many, many centuries. And, but the question is, what do they really have? So when you study this in the Bible, after Hezekiah, his son Manasseh reigned. Manasseh took the land back into idolatry like Ahaz, and worship of God was banished. So Manasseh was succeeded by Josiah. Josiah receives his instructions through Huldah, and it's not through the traditional route through the path of the Levites and the Ark of the Covenant. He's getting his insight in the Old Testament from not from the Ark of the Covenant and the priests, which is unique when you really think about it, because that was supposed to be how these instructions were received for them. So Josiah instructed the Levites to return the Ark to the temple in Second Chronicles 35.3. So the Ark was obviously not in the temple at that time. And notice it was Josiah's request. If you go and read that whole discourse in the Old Testament, it was his request, but it never says they complied. It just says that he asked them to please return the ark. So the Assyrian Empire had ruled for some time, but was on its way out. And Egypt's pharaoh Necho was moving to retake the land, but was surprised because King Josiah was taking up arms against him. So think about this. You have Israel, the Assyrian Empire to the northeast, and Egypt to the south. And so Israel's kind of this buffer state between these two kingdoms battling. Well, Pharaoh Necho from Egypt goes out to war against Assyria, and for some reason he's surprised that Israel is coming out to battle him. And, he, and, that, and this is what he says in 2 Chronicles 35. But he sent ambassadors to him saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. And that's all in Second Chronicles 35, verse 21. So Pharaoh Necho is saying he's heard from the mouth of God, and God's commanding him to go to war against Assyria. So, number, I mean, your first thought should be, how is he hearing from the mouth of God in Egypt? That's, the Ark of the Covenant should be with Israel, but it wasn't. So why would Josiah go against Necho, and how did he hear from God? Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearken not unto the words of Necho. Again, there it is confirmed again in Second Chronicles, from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And so you have, again, Necho's hearing from God. So how could he have heard the words from the mouth of God? It's possible the Levites had sought refuge from Manasseh in Egypt, 
And was this what Josiah was after? Was this how Necho heard from the mouth of God? So Josiah goes in disguise and gets killed at Megiddo. Necho marched on to Carchemish, which is a, a city on the Euphrates River. He conquers the, the, conquers the Assyrian army. Thus, all the Syrian provinces in Israel came under his domain. But on his return, he, he deposed Jehoaz and made Eliakim, Josiah's eldest son, king. And so he changes the king in Israel after he conquers Assyria. So he, he did something that God really would be the one to do. So he carried him down into Egypt where he died. But four years after this, he again marched to the Euphrates and gets conquered by this guy named Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And if you've studied the book of Daniel, Jeremiah, you know who Nebuchadnezzar is. He, he has a key role in God's program. But he drove Necho back and took from him all the territory he had conquered from the Euphrates unto the river Egypt. And that's all in Jeremiah 46 and 2 Kings 24. So the Babylonian Empire would be one of God's ways to complete the judgment he had pronounced on Manasseh. If you remember, Manasseh in the southern kingdom of Israel got really bad. He, had, he was worshiping idols. He brought the golden calves back with the tribe of Dan into the land of Israel. And he just went way off the rails. So what about the Ark of the Covenant? Did the Levites continue to keep it separate from the events in Judea? And did this begin its trek southward from Egypt to Ethiopia? So the Levites were entrusted with this relic. And what I find amazing is they found scrolls now where Jeremiah talks about taking everything out of the temple before Nebuchadnezzar came to conquer the land. And so he took all the artifacts and hid a lot of stuff in these caves, but the ark was not there. And so the Levites had taken it to try to hide it away somewhere. And so note that Pharaoh Necho was not Egyptian. He was an Ethiopian, which is interesting too. See, Pharaoh a, is a title like president. It's not a, a name. It's just a title for their leader, but he was an Ethiopian. So he was the grandson of Necho I. So we tend to view the mercy seat as the lid of the ark. And however, the mercy seat is totally different. It's distinctively separate. It was always described separately. It's made of different materials. The ark was made of wood covered with gold, and it was suggestive of both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. So the mercy seat was made of pure gold, making it a more enduring relic. It wouldn't, it wouldn't wither away over time. See, if it was pure gold, if it was hammered out of pure gold, it would still be around today. And it speaks of his eternal royalty and reign. And all of that was a copy of the heavenly reality which had been shown to Moses in Hebrews 8.5. So the Holy of Holies was described as the location of the mercy seat in Leviticus 16 and 1 Chronicles 28. And even God himself is described as he that dwelleth above the cherubim of the mercy seat in Exodus 25, number 7, 1 Samuel 4, and 2 Samuel 6. So when you really think about this, the mercy seat, how cool would it be if the mercy seat was the literal throne that Jesus sits on in the millennium that the Ethiopians are going to bring back to him? And when you think about that, it makes, it makes Acts 8 and these verses in the Old Testament all make sense. So in Zephaniah 3, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplements, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. So the word bring here is yabal. It literally means to bear or to carry as in a royal procession. 
The word for offering is mincha, which is a gift, a tribute, or a present. And this, is, this apparently is the presentation by the Ethiopians that receives a really special call out in Isaiah 18.7. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of a people scattered and peeled and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. And when you hear that, the Ethiopians, we don't think of them as this mighty kingdom today, but all the way back in Egypt, when Moses was in Egypt, he led wars against Ethiopia. They were a mighty army. They were a kingdom that really was, as Isaiah 18 says, terrible from their beginning. And Moses was a very astute general that led Pharaoh's armies against Ethiopia in a lot of battles before the, the plagues and all of that in Egypt when he was growing up there. So a nation met it out and trod underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. They that dwell in the wilderness, this is in Psalm 72, shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. And that's down in that Ethiopian area. So they have a gift that they're bringing. They have some kind of gift that Ethiopia is waiting to bring to Jesus. And it all makes Acts 8, it makes Acts 8 really come to life when you have that background in the Old Testament. So in Acts chapter 8, there's this major revival going on in Samaria, and Philip is sent to the desert. So in Acts 8, 26, and the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So right there, you should just wonder, what is the, the treasurer of Ethiopia doing in Israel when Jesus is there walking around or looking for him? That's a hint that something's going on. Who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, basically, do you understand what you're reading? And the dignity, the, the Ethiopian, and he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer. So opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh this prof the prophet of this, of himself or of some other man? So he's reading Isaiah, and he's wondering, who is this speaking of? There's somebody here that... Is this the Messiah or somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. So Philip was raptured after this. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So it brings, 
all of this background about the Ethiopians having a gift to deliver Jesus in the millennium makes Acts 8, it really makes it come to life. Because here's this guy that's a treasurer of everything of Ethiopia, and he's on an errand for the queen. And he's coming to worship the Messiah and to bring this gift, this tribute, but he didn't realize that Jesus had to die first. Then he will come to rule and reign. And so he's trying to understand. He's sitting there reading these scriptures trying to understand, okay, I don't get it. I came up here to Jerusalem, and Jesus was here, but now he's not. So what is happening? Did I miss something? And, and the Lord obviously gets Philip to go and interpret this for him that, no, he had to die first. Then he will come to rule and reign. And so the treasurer obviously returns to Ethiopia and talks to the queen. And you can just imagine the conversation. She probably was blown away too that, wow, okay, Jesus had to die first. Then he's going to come to rule and reign. And we have this gift to offer him. And so it, it really brings a, a part of Acts 8 to life that really, to me, it didn't make a lot of sense for a lot of years. Why is this guy from Ethiopia here? Why is he looking for Jesus? What does he not understand? What is going on there? And I think it's just, it may be a little bit speculative on my part, but the scriptures clearly lay out, they have something as a gift to Jesus. Now, the question is, what is it? And I think it just would be really, really cool if it was the mercy seat that Moses made in the wilderness that they're still holding on to, that Jesus will sit on in Jerusalem. So with that background, let's take these last five verses. Go back, Austin. With that background, let's take these last five verses in chapter 20. So verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it. So this is after the millennium. So we've gone through the millennium. We talked about that. So after the thousand years, okay, this is at the end of that thousand year period. This is what happens. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So imagine the earth and heaven literally just being rolled up and pushed aside and there's, it is no more found but there is one thing sitting and that's the white throne and Jesus sitting on it. And we are obviously in heaven at this point. Us, as the church, at the end of the millennium, we'll be sitting in heaven in the throne room of the universe and watch Jesus just wipe it away and start over. See, we know that heaven and the space really around us, it's not empty. You tend to think of space as this empty, void vacuum that nothing can, can survive in. And it's actually very much material. It's got... It's got structure to it. It has density to it. And the scripture talks a lot about this, that the Lord in Job 9.8, he who alone stretches out the heavens. He's stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain in Psalms 104, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in in Isaiah 40. He stretched out the heavens in Jeremiah 10, the Lord who stretches out the heavens in Zechariah 12, and this language is found all over the Bible. In 2 Samuel 22, Job 26, Job 37, Psalms 18, 144, Isaiah 42, on and on and on it goes. This, this language of stretching out the heavens. And one of the greatest discoveries in modern science is that space out there is not infinite. It has an ending. And they've, they've discovered that. 
that at some point there's an end. Now it's very, 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 very far away, and it gets really technical in the physics behind it, but it's amazing, and it's exactly what the Bible has said all along, that the Lord has stretched it out and set it in place like a tent curtain. It can be torn in Isaiah 64.1. Space can be torn. It can be worn out like a garment in Psalms 102. It can be shaken in Hebrews 12, Haggai 2, and Isaiah 13. It can be burnt up in 2 Peter 3, and that's obviously when Jesus just takes his voice away. It's holding every one of those atoms together right now. He's just going to take it away. In 2 Peter 3, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. It can be split apart in Revelation 6. It can be rolled up like a scroll in Hebrews 1 and Isaiah 34. So in order to roll it up, you would have to have a different dimension to roll it up into, right? If you take this two-dimensional sheet of paper, in order to roll it up, there has to be a third dimension for it to go up into. So if there's three-dimensional space and God's going to roll it up, there has to be another dimension for it to go into, and that's where we get to sit to watch him do this. And so space is very tangible. It's very physical. It has zero-point energy. One cubic meter of space has more energy than 100 million suns integrated for 100 million years. Just think about that. How much energy is there? And they've discovered that. They call it zero-point energy. And so he's going to just wipe it away. He's going to roll it up and just push it aside, and it's going to be worn out like a garment, which is amazing. At the end of it all, it's just going to go away, and we get to sit there and just vast in the glory of it. It's amazing because when he first created this heaven and earth, the angels got to stand and cheer with him. The next heaven and earth, we get to stand and cheer with him, which is just an incredible privilege. You get to see creation at work. So in verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book according to their works. You do not want to be judged by your works. This is not the judgment. If you are in Jesus, this is not your judgment. We that are in Jesus get to stand before the Bema seat which is from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. The white throne is for unbelievers. It's those that are not saved. Now, the Bema seat is the seat that the Greeks would stand before to receive rewards for running in the Olympics, for participating in the Olympics. It was called the Bema seat. So it's a place where you get to stand, and the Lord gets to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here is your inheritance. Enter with me into thy kingdom. And you go into eternity at that point. I, it's total speculation, again, on my part. But I, I think from the scripture you can deduce that the Bema seat happens right after you die. If you're in Jesus, you get to stand there and praise him for everything that happened in your life that was in the spirit. So the white throne is for unbelievers. You do not want to be at that throne. Okay, That's not the throne for us. The dead at this point are, the only, are only the unsaved. So think about that. At this point, after the thousand years, everyone who's been saved is somewhere with Jesus in heaven by then. So the dead that are resurrected to this are those that are not saved. That's all that's left by this point in Revelation. So the dead are only the unsaved. The rich man from Luke 16, we talked about this last time, 
Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man that is still in hell right now in Hades waiting for a drop of water from Luke 16 will be at this judgment. So he's still there right now. He's going to be there for a thou- another thousand years after the millennium, during the millennium, and then he's resurrected to this, which is called the second death. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But all of the saints in the Lord have been resurrected by this point. And so the books will be opened. And you want to make sure your name is not blotted out of the book of life. That's what this is all about. Do you know the Lord or not? You know, that's really what it comes down to. And the Lord, he was so faithful years ago to put this together for me. I, I wasn't wrestling with it, but I was really seeking an answer on what is this blotting out all through the Bible? Because you see this language everywhere that there's a lot of times in the Bible when somebody does not accept the Lord that, and they go against him that the Lord says, I must blot them out of my book, the book of the living, the Lamb's book of life. And so in Psalm 69, look what it says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So they are there. And, and to set the stage a little bit, everyone that has ever been born or fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb by our God, our King, is written in the Lamb's book of life. The question is, do you then appropriate what Jesus did for your sin, to remedy your sin, for your name to stay written in the Lamb's book of life? It's almost like when you accept Jesus, he takes that ink pen in the blood of Jesus and just traces it over your name. And you're written, you're there, you're forever there, sealed, you can never go away. But if you don't, then he has to blot you out because the only way he can have fellowship with you is for you to accept Jesus, that's it. He cannot have fellowship with you otherwise because you are in a place of complete unrighteousness. You are not holy yet. You cannot have fellowship with the Lord until you appropriate and cover yourself with the blood of Jesus, then your name is forever sealed there, and you will start the greatest walk you will ever experience in your life of walking with the Lord and letting him just shed everything off of you. In Exodus 32, yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, this is Moses speaking. This is how much Moses loved the children of Israel. Look what he says. If not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. See, Moses was willing to sacrifice his salvation for the children of Israel. That's how much love he had for them. And God said, you can't do it. As much as you would want to, I can't exchange your salvation for theirs. And so it's an amazing testament of the heart of Moses and how much he loved these people. Paul did the same thing in the New Testament. In Revelation 3, verse 5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In Psalm 139, My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. How many of you knew you were made in the center of the earth before you went to your mom's womb? That's just incredible. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, 
which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. So your members of your body, you were written in the Lamb's book of life before they were even fashioned in your mother's womb. They're written there in the book. In Psalms 51, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Second Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they may that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. See, Jesus died for everybody. And then 1 Timothy 4, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. See, if he's the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe, it means he's still the Savior of all men, even if they don't believe. And so I love that that 1 Timothy 4.10, I just love that contradiction right there. He's a savior of all men, but especially of those that believe. In 1 Timothy 2, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And then the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting sounds like everlasting to me. And it sounds like it's never-ending life. It's not conditional on what you do. Once you are saved, you have everlasting life. The question is then, how much do you live for him or not? That's the question. And that gets into sanctification, inheritance and rewards, the crowns that are waiting for you, that we all get to cast at the feet of Jesus. There is a reward for living for the Lord. But he died for everybody. And so my challenge to you is to think about who do you know that does not know the Lord and really think about their name is there in the Lamb's Book of Life until their very last breath and God has to blot them out if they didn't accept his remedy. And just, we're all going to be with family this week. I have, we have a lot of people from the church traveling to be with family right now for the week, for Thanksgiving. Think about your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, brothers, siblings, anyone, nieces, nephews, anyone that does not, yet you know they do not know Jesus. Pull them aside, and I am just imploring you, talk to them. Give them a reason for the hope that you have in your heart. Don't let Thursday come and go without having that conversation with a long-lost relative that you get to see. Look Look them in the eye and just share with them and compassionately put your arms around them and just say, Jesus died for you. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and I want to help you keep it there. So share with them your testimony. Share with them with what the Lord's doing in your life. In verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. Again, you don't want to be judged by your works because they will never offset the sin. No matter how small your sin is, the weight is gigantic. You cannot work your way out of it. There's nothing you can do to to tip the scales in your favor. What you have to do is take the weight of Jesus and put on the other side of the scale. 
and it just will, there's, then there's nothing on that side, no matter how bad it was, there's nothing that counteracts it because Jesus is the counter to all of that and he just wipes it away. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Again, the book of life. Jesus knows every single person. He does not miss a one. There's not one missing. It's interesting that the sea has some dead to give up, separate from death and hell. And that may be related to what goes on between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that we may get into after we finish Revelation. But it's, it's amazing in verse 13, the sea gives up the dead and death and hell deliver up the dead. So there's different groups of people here somewhere. You can be born twice and die once, or you can be born once and die twice. And that's really what it's all about. If you're born, you have to be born again from John 3. Remember, Jesus talks about that with Nicodemus over and over. You must be born again. And if you're born again, how can you be unborn? You can't. Just like right now, nobody in this room, nobody watching online could say, gosh, I wish I could never be born. And no matter what you do, you'll never not be born. (laughs) It's the same when you put your life in Jesus. You can never be unborn. You're born again. And you can then be born twice, and you only have to die once. And Jesus takes care of the rest. The second death has no grip on you. See, the second death is where Jesus will resurrect everyone that did not accept him for all eternity, or from really from the fall of Adam, I should say. At the end of the millennium, he resurrects them to this white throne, and the second death is where you are totally separate from the body and the soul, and your spirit is cast into the lake of fire. So the opportunity to keep your name written in the book of life is while you are on earth. That's it. There's no second chance. There's no boy, I wish I could have done that when you get there. If you think about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, again, he knew what happened. He knew what he was receiving was just. He knew what he had to do to not be in hell at that point. And he was crying out for Abraham to send someone to his brothers because he knew they were not saved. And remember, Abraham said, hey, even if one from the dead came to them, it wouldn't matter. They have the prophets and the scriptures. Let them read that. They will know what to do. And it's just a testimony that God's word from Romans, he's placed eternity on the hearts of man. And it's amazing how even people that want nothing to do with the Lord, they know they are eternal. When you really get down to the root of of the issue, the reason why they don't accept the Lord is because it's a flee from accountability. They don't want to be accountable to someone. And you see that, you you see it in your kids too, right? They they steal a, a cookie or something, right, or do something bad to their sibling, they, what's the immediate thing? You know, well, he, he did it, or she did it. It wasn't me. And it's to flee from accountability. So what Jesus wants to do is it's not about, it's not about living and, and giving up and, and being in this life with the Lord in terms of all these rules you have to follow and everything. It's about submission, It's about living again and being born again. And you will truly at that point realize, hey, there are things in my life that I need to get rid of, that I've got to shed this because I'm not equipped to carry this yoke. Remember from Matthew, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so 
the yoke he's talking about is, is a finely tailored yoke that's fit for you to carry a burden that he's made for you to walk in the kingdom and to carry that to further his kingdom. But once you're in him, the best way to know that is to, you've got to build your faith. And so what is it in Hebrews 11.1? 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's important because in Hebrews 11.6, without it, it's impossible to please him. And so how do you get it? You better know how to get it then. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God in Romans 10.17. And Acts 17.11 tells you, you need to get faith daily. Search the scriptures daily. Getting in the word of God is not a... It's not an option once you're in Jesus. He is asking you and imploring you and pleading with you to do it. You've got to get in the word so that you know how to go out in the world and operate. It's the only source of truth. It's the only source of truth. And in a world in which we live today where there is deceit that is rampant, you have to filter all of that with the truth, the truth of, of the word of God. So if, you not, if you've not accepted Jesus and you want your name to not be blotted out of the book of life, it's this simple, it's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So you can make sure your name stays in the Lamb's book of life. Do not let it be blotted out because he wants to welcome you home forever. In Isaiah 1:18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So no matter, again, it doesn't matter what you did. It's all offset. Everything is made clean and pure. And he gives you a white garment. There's nothing that you can't submit to him that he will not make right. And that's really what it's all about. Because at the end of the thousand-year reign, it is nothing but Jesus. He is everlasting from everlasting to everlasting. And when we start chapter 21 next week, we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be amazing. It's the chapter that the Lord gave us the namesake for this church out of, that new city, the new Jerusalem that he went in John 14 to prepare for us, that he's been working on for more than 2,000 years almost. And it's going to, it is going to be revealed right here next time in chapter 21, which is just incredible. It's our forever home as the church. Of, of Jesus. So with that, I'll just close this in prayer real quick. If you've got any prayer requests, anything, that's our email address. Feel free to reach out. Lord, we just thank you so much again for Revelation 20. God, we've got two chapters left of the greatest book of the entire Bible, and we just thank you for holding it together all of these thousands of years for us today to know exactly what you would want us to do in our lives, in this world, right now, Lord, we should be racing and running to live for you. Because, Lord, we just can see the seasons in which we live with Israel back in the land, with the clamoring for a one-world government, with everything that's going on, God, we can clearly see that these are the latter days that was spoken about all throughout the Bible. And so, Lord, let us forever be looking up to meet you in the air, to go home with you from 1 Thessalonians 4. And Lord, we are just so thankful for that promise, the blessed hope, the blessed hope from Titus. So Lord, with that, I just pray a special blessing upon all of the families here today. Be with all of those that are out traveling. 
all of those watching online, God, be with those families and bring them back home safely and give all of us a great time as we gather as families for Thanksgiving, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.